So as we pick up from uh, where we left off last week at the end of Titus chapter 2, uh, we're, uh, this is where we, we, what the passage that George read for us this morning. And again, we see a lot of similarities to what we saw in chapter 2 last week, uh, a long section on how to act out our Christian faith, and then again, same as last week, a, an extremely run-on sentence. Uh, depending on the English version you have, it's broken up into two or three or four sentences. Some English versions do keep it as one sentence, but the original Greek, there's a very one run-on sentence of the goodness and mercy of God packed full of theology. So again, a similar passage to last week. Uh, just for a review of last week, uh, for those that uh, weren't here or may have forgotten some of the, uh, the details of the context of this book. It was, again, written by Paul, who was writing to Titus, who was a fellow missionary with him. And he left Titus on the island of Crete. And as we mentioned last week, the people of Crete had this horrible reputation of liars, cheats, slanderers, people who could not do anything good. And Titus was left to help establish the church there as Paul went on. So a difficult situation for Titus to be in, and a situation in need of encouragement, which is what he's getting in this letter from Paul. So as we move into this week's passage, it's also important to remember that when Paul wrote this letter, there were no divisions in it that we have today. There were no chapters and verses. It was one letter from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 15. The entire book was one continuous letter. It wasn't divided up. So when we look at it that way, we see chapter 1 is Paul's initial greeting and then his instruction to Titus as to who to put in leadership of the church, the people to look for as the the leaders, the elders of the church. Then chapter 2, he goes from there to, now for everyone else, this is how you are to live. And then he throws in this jam-packed sentence of theology, the goodness of God, God's mercy and grace to us. And then he goes right, and that was basically where we left off last week. And then he goes right back into this, here's how you live, which is where we'll pick up this week. So really it's a continuation from last week when Paul talks about the grace of God appearing and bringing salvation. And then says to Titus, declare these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority. No one, let no one disregard you. And that goes right into this this uh, passage this week, which starts with a general call to all people to be submissive to authorities and rulers. So we've gone to this from last week, the distinction of here's the message for the older men, for the older woman, for the younger woman, for the younger men, for the slaves, and now here's the message for everyone. And as we touched on last week, the message to the individual groups was fairly consistent. There were slight differences within the groups, but overall the general theme was love other people and do what is caring for others so that those outside the church can see you and how you interact with your family and the fellow believers and those within your community and say, those people have something good, I want to be a part of it. Act in a way that the gospel cannot be slandered 
by our actions. And now we get into this general to everyone, starting with be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient to be ready to do every good work. And then speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy towards all people. We've gone from last week this idea of predominantly here's how you react to those in your family, those that are within your personal community that you have regular interactions with, to here's how you react with everyone that you may encounter, whether they be friends or acquaintances or enemies or whoever it may be, this is how you interact with everyone else around you. Paul starts with the, the ruling powers, the government, the, those in authority, and it's a very different context today. We live in a democracy where we, although the government may not be, or it may be that the government that we personally have chosen, but as a society we choose our government, which is very different from a day, the day that Paul lived in where government was essentially chosen for them. There was, uh, there was some sense of democracy in the Roman Empire at that time, but for the most part, it was emperor, and the emperor did what he saw right, and he was in control, and people had very little say into it. So there's a difference there, but a lot of the, the, the commands and this idea that we are to Fall, into, fall under the authority that government has been given remains the same. If the governing body, whatever it may be, is doing things and has set laws that are good and just laws, we as Christians should be at the front of the line upholding those laws and upholding the standards that are set by a good and just government. If we're living in a time, and fortunately here, we are not in a time where the government has many laws and all these things that are contrary to our belief. For the most part, our laws and our government is based on the Judeo-Christian ethics of our Western culture. And we are fortunate to live in that. There are many places in the world today that are not in that. But at the same time, regardless as we touched on last week, when the government or the culture around us gets something right, we should be the front of the line saying, this is good, we are going to set the example of this. Just because it isn't necessarily instituted by a Christian and the way Christians are, or Christian leadership, doesn't mean it's bad. And if there's good, as Christians, we should be leading the way in the example of how to live that out. But what do we do when there's something that comes up and a law or something set by government is contrary to what we believe and it forces us to go against our faith? Paul doesn't explicitly say what to do here. He just says, submit to rulers and authorities. The Christian example that we see throughout the New Testament is one of servanthood and submissive humbleness. So as one commentator puts it, when authorities and rulers put things in place that are contrary to our Christian conscience, we are to submit to it, even to the point of death. 
We are to submit to the power of the government. And if we feel that we must go against something, we must submit to the consequences of that put in place. We don't, that doesn't mean we don't fight for justice and we don't fight for the rights of those who have no rights. We don't fight for the poor, for the homeless. We don't look after those needs. But we don't go out with the idea of we are above those that are set in place of rulers, in ruling. We are to submit to them, and if it's contrary to what we know to be true, we submit to the judgment that comes given the situation that we are in. As I say, fortunately for us, this is not something that we need to deal with here in Canada. We have a government that allows us to allows us to protest if we see something unjust, and it, we can speak our mind. We have that freedom to do that. But for many Christians in the world today, submission to their rulers and authorities in many cases means that they are put into place of great turmoil and trouble. It means that they are imprisoned or worse. And that is what we see here is the Christian call to submit and even to the point of uh, to our own detriment. Christ submitted to the point of death. That is the, the example that we have been set. So Paul's call to submit to those in control and in leadership is not one that is to be taken lightly. It's easier in some cases than others. That's where he starts, and then he goes and expands it from there. So we've gone from, in the previous chapter, those in our family, those in our immediate community, the relationship between a servant and a master, now to citizen and government. And then he says, goes on further to citizen to fellow citizens. Every person. He, he uses the, the ex- extreme language of speak evil of no one. It does not matter who it is. We are not to speak evil of anyone. Uh, depending on the translation, my translation then goes on to say, show perf- perfect courtesy to all people. Whether they are deserving of it or not, we show courtesy and respect and love to all people, regardless of whether we personally feel they deserve it or whether they even actually deserve it or not. We are to show that love and respect and honor that God has given and shown to us to all people. Every person is created in the image of God. Therefore, every person is deserving of the love and respect of every other person. In all of this, we are to be guided by the love of Christ. Whether it's to our spouses, our children, our parents, our church community, our governments, our rulers, anyone else, we need to be guided by the love of Christ. Regardless of what they do, we show that love. Regardless of the choices that other people make, people in leadership positions, people below us in, on the leadership scale of things, whatever it may be, we show love and we are guided by Christ's love. If they choose to sin, 
and we all choose to sin. Some of us are better at hiding it than others. Some of us choose sin. Some of us fall into sin that is more socially acceptable within the church or within culture. And there's sins that within the church are seen as more acceptable than others, which in and of itself, I could go on for hours on that, but I won't. Regardless of what sin it is, if people choose to sin, that does not change the way we love them. God loved us despite of our choice to sin. We need to love all others regardless of their choice to sin, whatever that sin may be. We love, and that is our guide. God's love for us is emulated through our lives to everyone else around us. On the note here of speak evil of no one, that doesn't mean that we don't point out people's sins in the right circumstance. We are called as Christians to rebuke and exhort and encourage one another when, we, when the time arises. We are called not to judge by Christ. It, do not judge lest you be judged. And that passage gets thrown around oftentimes in church circles. The context of that is not necessarily judging the actions of those around us. It's judging salvation. We are called not to make judgment calls as to whether someone is in or out. That is Christ's judgment and God's judgment alone. We are called to judge amongst ourselves, amongst those who profess to be Christians. We are called to rebuke and encourage and exhort them to proper living. We're not necessarily called to go out to those who do not profess to be Christian and try to tell them to live by our standards. We're called to encourage those who profess to have the same faith as us to live by the standards that the Bible sets. And that's what Paul is doing here in sending this message, saying this is how you live. He is speaking to the Christians. He's not speaking to the rest of those on the island of Crete, those who earlier in this, the, the letter, he said, they have this reputation of liars and cheats and evil people. He's not sending this to all of them saying, get them to act the right way. He's saying, you, the church, you act in this way, and then all those people will see you, and they'll see the way you're acting, and they'll see the way you're caring for one another, and you're caring for them, and you're interacting with love, and they'll say, there's something good about that. These people are on to something. The way they're living is different, and they aren't putting themselves first, and it's appealing. In chapter 2, Paul stated very clearly, the reason you go about this way of life, the reason you practice your faith this way, is so that others might see it and be attracted to it. He is not as explicit with that in chapter 3, but it's definitely there. Chapter 2 was, treat your community this way so that others see the way the community is and are attracted to it. Chapter 3 is, go out and treat everyone this way, and by the very nature of that, people will be attracted to it. When someone is nice to you, when someone treats you well, 
or treats your children well or your parents well or your friends well, you're attracted to that person. Because we like to be treated well. We like it when those that we care for are treated well. If we treat others well, they are going to respond in a positive way. If we go about and we are constantly going about telling everyone, telling others around us, well, that person is so bad. Did you know what they did? They were doing this, this, and this. They are going to have no reason to come and come to you and say, what is it about your faith? What is it that's different about you? If all we're doing is slandering them, saying how horrible they are, that's not appealing. There's a time to rebuke. And it's not a pleasant feeling to be rebuked, but we've all experienced it. And in hindsight, I think we can all look back at the times where we have been rebuked and say, yeah, that was necessary. I was really messed up for a while. But now I'm able to go on and improve myself, improve the way I'm living, because someone pointed it out. But if that's all we're doing to those outside, is pointing out all their flaws, they're not going to be attracted to what we have in any way whatsoever. So we speak no evil of anyone. And this is where the the common saying of, if you don't have anything good to say about someone, don't say anything at all. That's essentially what Paul's saying here. If you can't say something good about those around you, don't bother saying it. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't warn others. And at the end of uh, his letter, his first letter to, to Timothy... Paul makes it very clear to Timothy, he says, be aware of, I believe the name was Alexander the Metalworker. He has caused much harm to the church. So this was someone who was outside of the church, and Paul is telling those, be aware of him. He's a danger. But that is not the same as saying he's a horrible person, and do you know what he did? He says, be aware of him. Be cautious. And that's different than speaking evil of someone. And that's where, oftentimes, again, we get into trouble of, well, this person, they're a, danger to, they're a danger to us for whatever it may be. And then we just start to pile on more and more and more all of these things that they're so horrible at or that are, make them such a horrible, terrible person. And that is exactly what Paul is saying not to do here. We need to speak well of others Find the things that we can encourage them in. Help them. Encourage them to see the good that they are doing and continue that. Don't constantly point out the sin. As, uh, as Todd has said in the past, our faith is not about, first and foremost, being saved out of our sin. It's about being saved into the kingdom of God. And so often we get that twisted around and we go first and foremost to we're horrible sinners and we're getting out of that. And I am of the belief that first and foremost, we are being invited into the kingdom of God. Secondly, we are sinners and we're repenting and turning away from that. But first and foremost, our salvation is what we are being saved into That is the significant thing. That is the good news. The good news is that God came and made a way for us to heaven. Made a way for us 
into the kingdom of God here on earth. It is a salvation that has already come. It is not fulfilled, but we already are a part of that salvation. So Paul has this this message of here's how you are to live. And then he jumps out of that, same as we saw last week, of here's all these things, how you're to live, how you're to treat other people. He gives reasoning for it here. Treat other people that way because we were once like them. We were once in the same place as all of those other people. And for some of us, this is easier to understand than for others. Uh, Oftentimes, for myself, when I read a passage like this, it says, we were once like this, we were once foolish and disobedient, led astray. For me, I don't remember much of my life not being a Christian. So when I read passages like that, I understand it from the sense of I still have the human fleshly desires and the, the human nature within me is still there and I am still tempted to do all of the things that we are not supposed to do. But as someone who became a Christian at a very early age, I don't have that same sense of there was a distinct shift from I was this and now I'm this. For others, they have that. And there is, I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other. Paul, writing this, had that to an extreme. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute and kill and imprison Christians. And all of a sudden, Jesus came to him and said, What are you doing? Wake up. He had an instantaneous, very real conversion moment that he could pinpoint and say, this is the exact moment I became Christian, and before that, I was this. I was completely led astray, and now I am different. Paul still goes on to say, I am the worst of sinners. The man who wrote the majority of the New Testament says that he was the worst of sinners. And not that he was, but that he is. As he is writing the Bible, he's saying, I am the worst of sinners. Which is something that we get, and you see that often in people. The closer you become to God in your relationship with Christ, the more aware of your own sin you become. Paul went from being horrible to being, by the standards of most Christians today, amazing. He was... There's there's a reason that he's referred to as St. Paul. He was a saint. He was the example. He created the church in numerous cities. And he went from being horrible to being this great church leader, but in the midst of it still recognizing his own sin, but knowing that through the Spirit, through God, and the Spirit indwelling within him, he can say, I once was led by my worldly passions, and now I am led by the Spirit. I once hated people around me and was hated by those who around me. There was a hatred back and forth, but there is not anymore. And because we were once like this, we therefore need to treat those that are still like that in a way that is different. 
if we claim that we have received the love of Christ and we still treat those around us the same way we did prior to receiving God's love and mercy, we aren't getting it. We are not getting the full scope of what God's love and mercy has done for us. God's mercy is not a small thing. It is an immense thing, and our response to it should not be a small thing either. Our response should be an immense response. Our response should be a complete change in the way that we view the world around us, the perspective we have on our life, on the way we view other people, on the way we view money, on the way we view need, on the way we view everything. It all is to be informed by the mercy of God. So Paul gives, here's how you're to live. This is why, on a practical level. And then he makes that jump again. And there's where we get this run-on sentence, starting in verse 4. Verse 4 through 7 is one sentence. And we go from the the words that I used last week were the orthopraxy, the correct living, the correct acting out of our faith, to the orthodoxy, the correct belief, the correct understanding of the faith, which is what we get in these three verses, this one sentence. This idea of the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. We start there. That in and of itself is amazing. The goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. We don't really need more than that. The goodness and love of God made him he made himself known to man. If God had stopped there, that in and of itself is amazing. That the true holy one God, the creator and sustainer of all life, made his mercy and loving kindness and goodness visible to us, that in and of itself is beyond comprehension. But it doesn't stop there. And again, as I read through this, I mentioned it last week, I have this image of Paul sitting there writing and saying, God did this. Oh yeah, and then he did this and this. And he just gets more and more excited as he's writing. And that's the the feeling that I get as I read this. He appeared and he saved us. But not because of what we had done. It had nothing to do with anything we have done. Any righteousness that we may have been able to attain, it had nothing to do with that, the reasoning for God's salvation. But it was in accordance to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So there we go. We've got this. The Holy Spirit has come and renewed. And it's by God's mercy that we are saved. And then he goes on. The Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. Different translations, some would say richly, some would say generously, others say abundantly. It wasn't just that God gave his spirit for us. It was that God gave his spirit much more than we just needed. It's not just enough. It's abundant. It's more than we need that God has given us. And he did that 
through Jesus. Towards the end of verse 7, it was, He poured out the Spirit richly through Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs to the kingdom. We might become heirs to the kingdom of God. It's not just that we're saved and God's mercy has come and redeemed us from our sin and His Spirit has been poured out and renewed us and we're now able to become, able to enter into the kingdom of God. It says, we have been made heirs to the kingdom of God. We're not just simply citizens of that kingdom. We are heirs with Christ to the kingdom of God. This mercy and this love of God is so immense that it needs to encompass everything we do. That's the core, that's the meat of the theology that Paul pours out. And he just has it, this one, one sentence in the middle of how to live. The key things in there, well, I shouldn't say the key things, all of it is key. All of it is, it's a summation of our Christian faith. But one of the things that stands out to me within that is, in the middle of this list and these instructions on how we are to go out and live our lives, the things that we are to do, the things that we are not to do, Paul, right in the middle of that, gives this statement, and it says, we are saved not because works we have done by us in righteousness. It's not because of what we have done. Even though he's in the middle of this list of here's what you're supposed to do. It's not because of that that we're saved. It's because we are saved that we do all of these things. So Paul gives this great chunk of theology, this deep intellectual foundation core of the Christian faith of God's mercy coming, his love being shown, his spirit being poured out. And then he goes right back into, so here's how you're supposed to live. He says to Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying. What I have just said, it is trustworthy. It is true. It is good. You can cling to it. He says, I want you to insist on these things. Insist on making sure that these things are taught so that those who believe may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist that the goodness of God is preached and taught to everyone else, taught to all the believers, so that they can then go and act out that goodness and that love. We are not to take this gift that God has given us and hide it away and say, God has given me this. This is mine. It's so glad, I'm so glad I've got it. It's God has given me this. It is so amazing. How can I keep it for myself? I need to give it and share this with everyone else. That is the core of this message. It is a very evangelical message. It is a message of evangelism. It is a message of go and witness to those around you. A quote that came to my mind, and it's oftentimes uh, attributed to Francis of Assisi, um, although it's likely not him, but it aligns with what he, his, uh, his view and his perspective on faith was, Proclaim and preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. 
I think that fits with this, of this idea of our lives are to be so appealing to those around us that they see something different. The way we live our lives is our proclaiming of the good news. The way we live our lives is the way that we create evangelism. It is the way we go about evangelism. We need to be seen as people who are loving. If the church is seen as people who are hateful, if the church is seen as people who do nothing but point out the wrong in others, the church will not be seen as a loving place. The church needs to be seen as a place that is accepting of people for who they are. And then, when they are become, they are welcomed and they are encouraged as part of the community. I was once uh, taught, a, a given a lesson on evangelism when I was at college, and the professor said there are three B's to evangelism. Three things that we try to get people to do, and those three are believe, belong, and behave. And oftentimes the church looks at it and says, the church as a whole, especially in North America, has said they have to come, come in the order of you have to believe, and then you have to behave, and then you can belong. If we follow the example of Christ, the belonging comes first. Christ goes out and welcomes. He goes to everyone and has, gives them a sense of belonging. They belong. They are welcomed within the community. And then most of the time, that belonging creates a behavioral aspect. People start to act the way that the people around them do. We see this all the time in, it's predominant in, you could say, in high schools, or the, where you would see, you see a group of friends. And that group, over time, they all start to dress similarly. They start to do the same things. There's a sense of belonging, and the behavior starts to become similar. If we welcome people into the church, and they start to feel that they belong, it, they will, by natural instinct, start to behave the way that those around them whom they love and care for, behave. If we are showing this behavior of love, people will see that, be welcome to it, they will get a sense of belonging and start to show that same behavior. And out of that, then belief can come. And it doesn't necessarily have to come in that order. But the example of Christ is that the belonging and that sense of welcomeness, that sense of being a part and being part of a community that was always the first thing. Uh, a few weeks ago, we heard the story of Zacchaeus, who was despised by the people around him, despised by his community, and Jesus came to him and said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your place for dinner. He made Zacchaeus feel that he was a part. Zacchaeus responded. Zacchaeus responded with faith and a change of his lifestyle because there was this sense of belonging. If we allow people to feel that by showing them love, we will see changes in the way people live and the changes of the heart and changes in their belief. 
it starts with a sense of welcoming and belonging and love. It doesn't start with a sense of condemnation. That's what Timothy is told to instruct these people of Crete. Go to those around you who are these horrible people and show them love. Let them feel like they're a part and they will be drawn to that. They will see it and recognize it as a good thing and that will encourage them to belong and behave and believe the correct things. Believe the gospel of Christ. We then get a short list of things we're not supposed to do. Uh, Essentially, there's four things on this list that we're not supposed to do. We see there is to be uh, no quarreling. Sorry, let me... uh, Avoid foolish controversies. Avoid genealogies. Dissensions. And quarrels about the law. So of those four things, two of them are relatively easy to deal with in today's culture because they don't really apply to us as much today. Those being, the, in the context they're in, the genealogies and the quarrels about the law, the law being the Old Testament law. And to some extent, we still wrestle with that today, but not as much. The... The genealogies, this would have been due to the fact that this new church, there would have been Jews and Gentiles together in the one church. And the Jewish people of the day, the Jewish Christians, many of them would have been devout Jews who have now accepted Christ. And they would still see themselves as Jewish, but Jewish believing that the Messiah has come and believing in Christ as the Messiah. And for them, genealogies, their lineage, would have given them a sense of entitlement, a sense of status. And that's what Paul's saying is to avoid here. He's not saying, don't worry about where you've come from. Don't don't try to figure out stuff about your grandparents or great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents. He's not saying, don't go into those things. He's saying, don't let this idea of well, I'm from the tribe of so-and-so, therefore I have this status. Do not let that inform you. Do not be bogged down in saying, I'm of status because I'm from the tribe of Judah or I'm from the tribe of whoever it may be. I'm a Levite. Do not let that bog you down. Do not get caught up in those genealogies. And do not get caught up in quarrels over the law. Jesus made it clear. He said, I have not come to, to remove the law. I have come to fulfill the law. Jesus takes the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, and makes it more personal. Uh, in, the, the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he lists all of these things. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And he takes the law and he makes it so much more. And we see that consistently throughout Jesus' ministry where he he goes to the intent of the law. And the Jewish people would have been so caught up on the letter of the law that they missed the intent. And that's what Paul's saying here is don't get caught up on the letter of the law. Jesus has come and he has given us the intent. He's given us 
the real reason behind it. That's the important thing. It's not every detail down to, well, it says this. It says you can't work on the Sabbath, so we can't do this, 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 and this. But Jesus says, it doesn't matter. If you're doing good, that is okay. He talks of, Jesus talks about the idea of, is it wrong to heal on the Sabbath? The letter of the law says, yes. The intent of the law says, no. That's what Paul is getting at here, saying to these people, don't get so caught up on the letter of the law that you miss the big picture, that you miss the intent. And in that sense, it applies very much to us today. Don't get so caught up in, well, we need to do this, this, and this, that we miss God's love, and we miss the ability to show God's love. The other two things on Paul's list of things to avoid tend to be much more relevant today. It's uh, avoid, uh, avoid foolish controversies and dissensions. That doesn't mean that controversy is wrong within the church. It doesn't mean that at times dissension is wrong within the church. None of us would be here in this church today if it wasn't for the dissension of Martin Luther. Martin Luther created the Protestant church because of dissension, because he saw what was happening within the Catholic church at the time and said, this isn't right. Something needs to be done. So not all dissension is necessarily wrong. But we need to be careful. We need to check that, firstly, with love. Firstly, with God's love for us, and how are we embodying that to other people. If the dissension that we see is motivated by the love of God, then we need to be aware of it, and we need to take that into consideration. There was dissension and division within the church during the American Civil War. There was dissension and division over whether slavery should be illegal or not. That was something that there was division, and I believe the outcome of that obviously was a good outcome. But if there's dissension and division over things that are not as big, that are not as, not as crucial in the viewing and the showing of God's love... Those are the things we're to avoid. The, the foolish controversies. The, the things of the format of the way we worship. And yes, there is, ish, there is differences in that. And there's a reason that we do things differently here than St. Timothy's does in this room right before us. And there is value to both. But if we were to go to them and say, you've got it all wrong... There's no value in that. If they were to come to us and say, you've got it all wrong, there's no value. That's this foolish controversy over, in essence, a style. And yes, I understand there are some belief differences between denominations, but most of those belief differences are on the way that we practice the love of God. and Or not the love of God, the way that we practice our worship of God. The way we practice the love of God is the same. That is the core. The love of God is the core. God loves us. We go out and love others. 
So that's where we come to the end of Paul's message here, the, the core of his message. He's given these theological gems in both chapter 2 and chapter 3. He has another one in chapter 1, a very similar thing in the middle of the list of here's what it is to be an elder, this, again, message packed full of theology. But essentially we've read an entire letter of here's how you go to go about and live your life, Oh yeah, and here's why. God is so amazing and so good and so merciful and so loving. And because of that, oh yeah, here you do this and you do this. This is how you interact with people. God loves you, so you love them. And then Paul ends. And I was talking with James this morning and mentioned that uh, for me, coming to a conclusion of a sermon and writing the ending of a sermon oftentimes is the most difficult part. And uh, what I've done this morning is essentially the same thing that Paul's done, which is, here's all this stuff, and then that's it. And I'll quickly go over Paul's final instructions here in verse 12 through 15. Paul has this amazing list of things and then just stops and says very practical things. Um, When I send Artemis or Tychius... So presumably it's one of those two is who's actually going to be delivering the, this letter that Paul's written. Uh, when I send them, come and meet me at Nicopolis. I'm going to be there, so and I want to see you again. You've done these things. Pass on this message and then come and meet me. Oh yeah, and uh, then he says, and Zenus uh, and Apollos, who are there, make sure they have what they need for their trip to go on to the next cities and proclaim the message there. So he goes from this deep thing of here's your how to live your life as a whole, here's the theology to the practical. Make sure these people are cared for, come and meet me here. And then he leaves. And then he says, and grace and peace be with you from everyone here to everyone there. The one comment that I will make on that is the same comment that I made last week when we dealt with the passage on... uh, particularly last week's passage about how the instructions to the young women that in today's culture are very controversial. This final instructions, this final greeting and these instructions, again, show us that this was a letter written by a specific person to another person at a specific point in history. This, the thing of how, how do we apply... Speed Zenith the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they lack nothing. Yes, we can apply that today to support those that are going out and preaching the word of God, but in a very literal sense, we can't do that. Those people lived 2,000 years ago. There's a context to this, and we always need to understand the context to understand how to apply it today. So with that... I will close on the note of God's love and mercy is so good that we cannot just sit back and do nothing once we've experienced it. If we truly understand it, which we'll never get the full grasp of it, but if we even understand it to a small extent, our reaction will no doubt be to go out and show that love and mercy to other people. So with that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
that you speak to us through this book that was written thousands of years ago. Thank you that you inspired men to write this years and years ago, and we thank you for the ministry that the early church did in expanding your mission and your gospel. We thank you that we can look back to this and we can see from here the struggles that the church has always had. We thank you that we can see encouragement from Paul to a friend, to Titus, this encouragement of keep up the good work. Here's some things that will help you along your way in proclaiming the gospel. We thank you that within that, we are given these beautiful passages of excitement about your mercy and your love, God. Help us to know that. Help us to know what it means to be loved by you. And help us to know what it means to love other people with your love. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand at this place. You spoke and worlds were formed. You breathed and life was born. You knew that one day you would come. So far from heaven's throne, clothed in human form, you showed the world the Father's love. Sins are gone, my debt's been paid. You gave, you gave your life away for me, for me. You lived a sinless life, yet you were crucified. Brought our freedom on the cross, forsaken for our sin, He died and rose again. Jesus, You are the Lamb of God.